0: Well good evening. I know we still have folks coming in, so just kind of make yourself at home. This is a very informal class. Uh, You can bring your dinner in, you can bring your drinks in, you can doze. People frequently do, and uh, it doesn't bother me. Some people have said that I have a very good voice to sleep by, and that's uh, fine. I want to be known for something. I'm okay with that. Well, Welcome to our uh, study, Lessons in the Holy Land. It's really not so much a study as it's literally trying to just take a little tour through Israel. Our title slide is a picture that we took, uh, although it's an iconic picture, that you see them all over the place, of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So just across the, the valley. And we will be there. We will end our trip in Jerusalem and talk about some of the sites in Jerusalem. Uh, housekeeping, I forgot to tell you this last time, but there's the number for questions. If you have questions, feel free to text them in during the lesson. If you text them in during the week, Laura's not watching for them, sorry about that. But if you text them in during the lesson, love to answer any questions that you have. We, last time, I'll show you a modern political map. We'll jump into this lesson. This is, this is a modern political map of Israel. We were in the south, and really not quite the southern half, but most of southern Israel is desert, the Negev. We were in the wilderness, or the desert, of Zin. And we talked about, if you remember, in the southern part of Israel, as the Israelites left Egypt, came into the desert of Zion, they wandered there for about 38 years. And we said, you know, they didn't wander as in they were lost. They knew exactly where they were, and they weren't very far from civilization, the land they were going to go to, but they spent their time there. If you remember our saying, it was God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, but it took the desert to get Egypt out of the Israelites, and so that's, we talked about that last time, about what was the point of God bringing him in. Because if you're a tour director, actually march him around to the north in Galilee. We'll be there later in our series as well. But that's really the land of milk and honey. You bring him into the desert, they're like, hey, who bought this real estate? This is not good. But God had a purpose there, if you remember. And We talked about the desert experiences in our lives or how God refines us as well. Well, in this lesson, we're going to stay in the desert, but we're going to move a little north to some different terrain. We're going to go up to the, the Dead Sea, or in Israel they call it the Salt Sea, but the Dead Sea, and we're going to go up around that area and kind of explore that a little bit. Let me give you a, a map that's a little better close-up. I think this is the one I put on your handout. But this is a close-up. We're still in the southern part of Israel, but this is a close-up of the Dead Sea. This Dead Sea region is an interesting place. I mean, it's obviously well below sea level. It's in, if you remember the geographic areas on the coast, we have the coastal plain. And then moving inland, we have the Shephelah, which is just a low, low, low hills. Then continuing east where Jerusalem is, we've got the uh, mountains, the Judean mountains. And up in the Golan Heights, you have just mountain ranges up that side. And then you go down into the Jordan River Valley. It's actually part of a major rift that runs far beyond Israel, but to go down into this valley. Well, that's where the Dead Sea is. Dead Sea is literally a God-forsaken place in terms of geography. There's just not much that grows there. Let me give you a couple of pictures of the Dead Sea area. The Dead Sea, as you know, high, high salt content. The ocean is around 5% salinity. The Dead Sea is closer to 25% salinity. I mean, it's heavy mineral content. As you know, water comes in, water doesn't go out. It evaporates. The minerals stay. But that process is fairly consistent, and so it stays about 25%. In fact, you when know, we went into the Dead Sea, and you float in the Dead Sea, well, let me just tell you, you have to float in the Dead Sea. You have no choice but to float. It's the weirdest feeling just to sit down and lean back and you don't go underwater in fact you can't go underwater you know you're just going to float I don't care who you are and so it's a it's an interesting feeling now if you have any scrapes or cuts you will know that pretty quickly but that's kinda what the Dead Sea is you can't drink the water of course it's just not very hospitable around there but it really has a great draw there have been people live in this area For a long time, well before the Israelites got there. Now, it's not heavily populated, but you're going to see that uh, in this lesson, we're going to talk about one of the most famous people in the world in Jesus' time spent a lot of time here. The Dead Sea is attractive because of the minerals. It's an economic driver. You see here, uh, you see how much salt is on the shore. There are spas all along the Dead Sea where they have hot springs and mineral waters, and there have been spas there for a long, long time, back well back into antiquity. So you have spas there, which they thought were good for your health. There's obviously salt there. And in ancient times, uh, think Israelites, think the time of Jesus, salt was a precious commodity. I don't know if anybody in here is on a salt-free diet, but you know what I mean when I say eating without salt was pretty bland. Well, that was one of the few things they had to spice things up that grew there. Now, they also had some trade from the East where they got all kinds of different spices, but the most readily available thing for both preserving food and spicing food was salt. Tons of salt here, and so there's a great economic opportunity. They also had uh, bitumen here, which is a petroleum product in fact, you can read in the ancient authors talking about just lumps of black tarry stuff floating on the Dead Sea, and they would harvest it because they used it to uh, power their cars. No, actually, they used it to <laughs> caulk their boats. I mean, there are no boats on the Dead Sea. I mean, it just isn't going to last very long. And so you don't see any boats out there, by the way. But all the ships that plied the Mediterranean, they needed that. To caulk the ships. They also use this petroleum product and still do in medicines, so various medicines. So it was kind of a, a very economically driven place. There are uh, plants along the Dead Sea today that are still harvesting minerals, not just salt, but all kinds of minerals. And in ancient times, they did the same thing. So the Dead Sea became a huge, literally gold mine in terms of what you could get out of that. So that's what drew people to this area, and it drew, around Jesus' time, one of the most famous guys that we know, and that is, not a popular guy, but a very famous guy, and I hope that you'll think about him a little bit differently when we're through with this lesson. His name is Herod. If you remember Herod's story, he was an enterprising young guy who came up from the south, from Idumea, which is ancient Edom, Anyway, he came up and his family had some nobility and so he, he got in early with uh, the Hasmoneans and then the Romans and so he became a king of a little piece of southern Judea, this desert area. In fact, if you remember your history from Julius Caesar and he gets assassinated so then Antony, his lieutenant, gets in a civil war with Octavian, Octavian will later become Augustus Caesar. But Antony and Cleopatra versus Octavian, well, Herod picked the wrong side on that deal. He was hooked up with Antony and Cleopatra. And Antony and Cleopatra lost. But just to give you an idea how sharp this guy was, using skill and luck, and he must have been a silver-tongued devil because he talked his way into getting Antony, the guy he fought against, to make him king of Judea, so king of what we'd call Israel today. And so King Herod was a really sharp guy, a very sharp businessman as well, because when he got Judea, he looks around and he says, well, it's expensive to be king of a country because you've got to pay a lot of taxes to the Romans. But he looked around and he said, I've got a gold mine down here in the Dead Sea because the minerals here, everybody in the world needs. He sets up a huge, manufacturing and mining operation there. And to go along with it, our first site we're going to visit is a place down in the southern part called Masada. I'm going to show you what Masada looks like, and you're going to say, why would anyone live here? Okay, This is an interesting little place. Masada is part of a chain of mountains around there, But it's really unique in a couple of ways. One, it's very well situated by the Dead Sea. I mean, it's literally by the Dead Sea. I'll show you in a a photo here in just a second. It is also an impregnable fortress. All the other little mountaintops and plateaus around there are connected to each other, which means you could easily be invaded. This, you go all the way around it, it's not connected to anything else. It's just a big peak, it goes down into a valley. In fact, let me give you another view and you'll appreciate this a little bit more. This is looking up to Masada. That path, which is called the snake path, is the only way to get on top of it. Well, it's quite the little hike. This is a picture. The guy in red in the center of your picture is me. And how Laura got this shot without falling off that mountain, I have no idea. But you can see how absolutely steep it is, how it's 1,200 feet high, and how difficult it is to get up. Now we have steps and stair rails. In that time, there was just a path. And there are places on that path, if you fall off, you're dead. I mean, it's just a very precipitous climb up to an impregnable fortress. I mean, that place is unbelievable. Well, sitting up on top of Masada looking out, this is looking towards the Dead Sea. You'll see it in the distance. In ancient times, the Dead Sea was a little bit closer. It's receded a little over time and it's still receding a little bit. But for tourism reasons, they're trying to find ways to keep it from receding. But basically, Herod decided, I need two things, number one, I'm going to mine this place and I'm going to make tons of money. And he did. But I also need a fortress, a place to secure everything I'm mining and a place for me to be safe. Because Herod had two great traits. One, he was an egomaniac. He was very talented, but he thought he was a god. He was also as paranoid as you could get. And so this fit both of his purposes very nicely. He's sitting up on top of Masada in an impregnable fortress. I mean, it'd be almost impossible to take this place. And he turned it into an unbelievably great-looking palace up there. He spent so much money, it isn't funny. You know, Herod's known as a great builder. He rebuilt the Temple of the Jews. He built several palace fortresses like this. He built cities. You're going to see one of the cities he literally built out of nothing simply because he needed a place to ship these minerals. But anyway, he, starts and he, and he did it because he was incredibly rich. We don't talk about that much, but Herod was one of the most powerful guys in the world at that time. What he did was he leveraged the minerals and the resources of this area. He would mine them. He would bring them up to the top of the mountain, and he would store them. This is from the top of Masada, there are huge, huge storerooms up there. You can see how big these are. These are just a couple of huge storerooms. So when you get up there, you quickly realize this isn't just a palace and it isn't just a fortress. This is an economic center. It's like, think the Walmart warehouse, you know, that's shipping out all over the country. What they would do is they would mine the stuff haul it all the way up that path and store it, and then there'd be huge caravans that would take it from Masada over to the coast where it could be transshipped. He is sitting on two things, natural resources, and needless to say, Herod put everybody else out of business. It was a state-owned monopoly. And he's sitting on the trade routes between Rome and the east. So he's taken a cut of everything that goes through there and he is marking this stuff up unbelievably because Rome has to have it. The world needs the salt and the minerals and the bitumen, etc. He becomes literally one of the richest guys in the world. And he has huge influence in Rome for that reason. He's paying bribes. He's bankrolling emperors. I mean, you wonder why a guy as evil as Herod could continue to be king. That's because everybody owed him money. I mean, he is one of the most powerful guys in the world because he's rich. And one of the reasons he's rich is this, what appears to be, literally, a God-forsaken place. I mean, it's just not any place you'd think people would be. Well, let's talk about the Masada itself. Here's a, can uh, show you a better shot, but first, this is a model. And so you can see the mountain, and there's nothing connected to it. In other words, you've got to scale that thing if you're going to get up to the top. And on the back portion, the highest portion, is a fortress and all the storerooms and the commercial areas. And then as you go down those tiers, that's his three-tiered, three-layered palace that in those days looked out over the Dead Sea. It was gorgeous, really hot there in the summer, but it was gorgeous. Well, that's nice, but Herod decided that he, would, uh, he needed a swimming pool. He needed fountains. Now stop and think about what this place looks like. Can you imagine trying to get water up here? Well, let me tell you how they did it. This is the ruins looking from above of that area, and you see the three-tiered palace. It only rains here four or five days a year, and the average rainfall is something a little less than two inches. So if you want water, you better trap it. You can't get any out of the Dead Sea, And so they, in this part of the, in this whole part of the Israel, you'll find huge cisterns just chiseled out of rock underground. And you'll find all kinds of very ingenious channeling systems so that when it does rain, obviously none of the water's soaking in. There's no dirt there. It all runs off. And so they would channel all that runoff into these huge cisterns. Masada has huge cisterns on top but it also has cisterns dug into the sides so that all that rainwater going down the side, they would collect the water and then they'd haul it by donkeys up and and fill those cisterns. And so it was a, a huge engineering feat. And so you could store enough water up there to last for a couple of years. You could store enough food up there to last for 10 years. And I'll tell you a story in a little bit about Masada where people used that feat. Well, that's what Herod was doing. He built a great palace. He built a great fortress up there. And there's an interesting little faith lesson because I want you to understand some of the dynamics of Jesus' time. So here's Herod. He's, he's making a ton of money here on the minerals. He's very powerful in Rome. You, not only do you have Herod ruling it, you have a real... Uh, the Jews are very torn. The Jews in Jesus' time face the same problem we do. Some of them were very devout and they didn't participate in the culture. They didn't go to the movie theaters. You know, they didn't go to the public baths. They didn't go to the gymnasium. In other words, it'd be like us saying, oh, we're not really going to spend a lot of time at the casinos and we don't go to the bar every night and, you know, we're not going to go live like the people in the culture live. We're different. We're God's people. I'm not saying we, you know, there are things in the culture we can't participate in. My point is, is that, you know what I'm talking about there? you can live God 's way or you can live completely without God. Well, here was the dilemma in that time. You see it in our culture uh, pretty clearly because of the, we have a television that tells us all the delights of the culture you know and how there really is no God if you want to be happy, you need stuff and, and you need to go have fun and you need to indulge all of your desires. They had the same thing in this sense. Herod built cities, Herod built theaters, Herod built The culture of the day, it was very affluent. And so the Jews had to say, well, do we continue to live according to the traditional ways? Or is it okay to be religious? We'll still go to church on Sunday, but boy, we really want to live like Herod lives. And when you read the Gospels, you're going to see a group of people, you're going to see a lot of tension between the Pharisees, for example, who were very devout, and the Herodians, The Herodians were Jews who said, you know, I'll still go to synagogue on Sunday, but I'm going to go live like Herod the rest of the day. I'm going to become more Greek. I'm going to become more cosmopolitan. There was a huge battle for the hearts and minds of the Jews. And so as you see, the Pharisees coming into conflict with the Sadducees, who were a little more savvy and business-minded, and the Herodians, who were very secular, we'd call them secular Christians or secular Jews today and then the more devout Jews. So there's a lot of tension in that society. Same tension exists today. God had called these people to be set apart from their culture and they were very tempted and struggled with that just like we do today. We're still called to be set apart from our culture and yet Herod's desire was riches, money, what will satisfy my desires. Jesus comes along teaching you know what, that's going to fade away. The deepest desires of your heart are a relationship with God, and you can see where the conflict's going to come in. And so as you read the Gospels, I want you to read it not as just, oh, Herod was a grumpy guy, he was a murderer, that's true, he was an egomaniac, that's true, he was paranoid, that's true, but he's also promoting a worldview, a system that says, look at me, I am the richest guy of the age. Look how I live. Wouldn't you like to live like this? There's more to it than just a tyrant. There's also a war for the ideas and a war for the soul of people. That's what Masada stands for, is that culture. The Jews could see this place and go, that's the allure of money. Masada stands for one other thing in Israel today, as it did then. A little bit after the death of Herod, a little bit after the resurrection of Christ we're now going to about 66 A.D., the Jews end up fermenting a revolt. And in that revolt, some of the Jewish zealots, the ones who want to rebel against Rome, incite an uprising in 66 A.D. And you recall the Romans come, I'll shorten the story, the Romans come rolling in and they completely devastate the Jews. They destroy Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Well, a handful of these zealots, less than a thousand people, end up holding up down here in the south in Masada. They get up there, they've got water for a long time, they have enough uh, weapons for 10,000 troops, that's what Herod had stored there. They have enough food for years that Herod had stored there and so they get up on top of Masada and they say, you know what, no one's gonna take this place. We will be assigned to Israel that Masada still stands as a free place. Well, the Romans look at that and they say, you know, who cares about a 1,000 Jews sitting on top of this mountaintop over here? We, have, we own the rest of the country. Oh, no. That's not the way the Romans work. They need to teach the Jews, they need to teach the whole world that you do not mess with Rome. So they send 7,000 soldiers into the middle of nowhere and they surround Masada. This is a major PR deal. Every night on the nightly news, zealots still holding out in Masada, 7,000 Roman troops besieged the city. You know? So from 70 AD until 73, they hold out. You can imagine what it had to be like, saying, hey, why don't you guys climb up that little snake path and shoot some arrows at them? Are you kidding me? I mean, you can't possibly climb up there before these guys drop some rocks on your head, you know, or shoot some arrows at you. You, You're not going to take this in a frontal assault. You can't go straight up the side of that mountain. So they've kind of got a little stalemate. But the Roman general was a very determined guy. As you look out here from the top, you see right at the bottom of this picture, you see that little square? That is the remains of a Roman army camp. I'll show you a couple more. This is, I know we're going to turn around and look the other way, which is on another hilltop. You see on the hilltop across the way, across the valley, you see the other camp. That was the Roman commander's camp. I'll show you a close up of that. That's the remains of a Roman camp. You can tell because those guys were just anal. I mean, they were squared out. They were, man, they were the original type A people. Very nice military, squared away. They built, and you can see this wall in the foreground, that little snaky looking thing, they built a wall all the way around so that nobody's going to sneak down and sneak away. In other words, you want to sit there, you're going to stay there. They had 7,000 soldiers in these camps and they camp out and try to starve them out for three years. Well, they quickly realized, we're never going to starve these guys out of here. So we're going to have to figure out a way to get up there. So they start building this huge dirt ramp. And so where they saw that little snake type trail. They effectively begin building one of those, but it's just literally tons and tons of dirt. Well, here's the problem. Every time they get close enough to the top, building this deal so you could take a lot of soldiers up, soldiers start getting killed because it's really easy to shoot them. Ah, but the Romans are pretty smart. So they go get a bunch of Jewish slaves and they make the Jewish slaves build the ramp. So now, the Jewish zealots in there are like okay we got a tough choice what are we gonna do we, we can kill the slaves and find out if we've got more arrows or they got more slaves but we'd be killing fellow Jews and they're in a dilemma and they decide we can't really kill thousands of fellow Jews and so they build the ramp all the way up and in 73 AD they get to the point where they are close enough to get enough troops up to attack and there's this really poignant story that Josephus records uh, for us. He's a first century historian who was in this war. Not long, he defected to the Romans and uh, went on to their side, but he writes just a few years after this war, four, or four years after this war ends, he writes his reminiscences of what happens. And here's what he wrote about Masada. He said, when they realized that they could no longer hold out, the commander, a guy named Eleazar, stands up in front of these zealots, and he says, we have a chance to die as free people. If we let the Romans come through there, our wives, they they have women children up there, our wives, our children are going to be sold into slavery, but we have a chance to die as free men. And so he makes this really eloquent speech, and he convinces them that they will not die as slaves to the Romans, that they will take their lives and they will die free people and so since there is a a prohibition against suicide in the Jewish law what they did was this they drew lots and they picked 10 men and those 10 men killed everyone else and according to the story people would lie down on the ground with their families and put their arms around them and the men would come and they killed everybody else then those 10 men drew lots and the person who drew that lot killed the other nine And then when everybody was dead, that last guy set the whole place on fire, and then he kills himself with the sword. I think that story is very likely true, not because Josephus was there, but because there were some sensible people, two women, five children, who said, not really my thing. So they take a little water, they go hide in one of the cisterns, And so they're then found by the Romans. So out of the 960 people that were on there, five survivors. And that's the story that they told. And sure enough, the Romans break in after a three-year siege, spending all that money, and realize, we didn't even really conquer the place. They're all dead. But still to this day, there's a rally cry there that Masada will never fall again. And there's kind of that image in the Israeli mind of the idea of, we can hold out against huge odds. We have the determination that we, the small country surrounded by enemies, we can hold out. We can be that bastion, that light of freedom in the midst of, uh, of uh, our enemies. And so this story of Masada is a symbol of Herod and his riches, and even more than that, it's a symbol of that culture Trying to win people over and saying, Look, you've got this silly religion and your silly God. Why don't you come live like we do? And I'll make sure there's two cars in every garage and everybody's got free ESPN. You know, it was the allure of the affluent culture. And then it's also a symbol of the determination to be free and to no longer be enslaved like they were in Egypt. That makes sense? That site is not only an interesting site economically, culturally, and militarily but it's a huge symbol in Israel. Okay, Let's move on up the Dead Sea a little bit because there are a couple other places that I'd like to show you. We're going to move from Masada in the south all the way up the the, uh, side of the Dead Sea to the north portion and that's a site that you probably all know about. It's called Qumran, Kerbet Qumran today. Qumran if, if it's possible, is even more God-forsaken than Masada. It's not as interesting-looking. I mean, there's no they're not living on the top of a mountain there, but there's this interesting enigma. Nobody cared anything about this place until the 1940s when there was an interesting discovery made there, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's why they're called the Dead Sea Scrolls is because Qumran is right on the, on the edge of the Dead Sea. This place is absolutely littered with caves like this you see in the picture. The interesting thing about these caves is they're all over the place because the uh, stone is soft. And so you've got some man-made caves, but an awful lot of caves made by erosion. And they're just in all the cliffs. But they look like that. It's not like you're just going to walk into a cave at ground level. I mean, if you want to get in these caves, you got to be a goat. I mean, it is not easy to climb into this. I don't know how you climb into that. Sometimes they lowered themselves down, I guess sometimes they climbed up. But one of the interesting things here is in this cave, this particular cave, is called Cave 4. It's where about eh, maybe probably 90% of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in that cave. And they were found by accident. You may remember this story by some boys who were throwing rocks and they heard something break, so they climb up into the cave and they realize, hey, there's a bunch of books in here. And the uh, story goes on from there, but the short version of the story is that uh, we find the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, the interesting thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I'm not if you have questions, we'll answer them, but I'm just gonna tell you a little about the Dead Sea Scrolls, I really wanna talk about Qumran and who wrote these things, who, who were these people, because that's kind of an interesting story. The Dead Sea Scrolls themselves don't have anything to do with the New Testament. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written uh, maybe a couple hundred years before Jesus, or copied. They weren't written from scratch, but they're copies of things. Maybe a couple hundred years before Jesus, up until close to 70 A.D., when the Romans come rolling through, when they conquered the whole country, so for over a period of a couple hundred years is when most of these scrolls are dated, but there's this huge library of scrolls. Well, none of them have anything to do with the New Testament directly, but they are hugely important to the Jews, hugely important to us in terms of the Old Testament, and here's why. Before this discovery, the oldest copy of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, dated from 800 A.D., I mean, that's old. There's nothing wrong with that. But the oldest copy you could pick up that wasn't Xeroxed, okay, is 800 A.D. from the Masoretic times. Well, a lot of people would criticize the Jewish religion, Christian religion, and say, look, your book probably isn't really accurate, particularly Islam, by the way, who would say, look, we believe in the God of the Old Testament, we believe in the Old Testament, but frankly, we don't think it happened that way. In other words, you read the Koran, they've got some of the same stories, but they don't turn out the same way. They said, hey, how do we know you Jews didn't change it? You don't even have a real, real old copy. Well, as you get into the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are a lot of documents there, but some of the main documents are copies of books of the Old Testament. And so if you compare the Dead Sea Scrolls copy of, say, Isaiah with the best copy that you had, there's a thousand years difference. In other words, the Dead Sea Scroll copy is a thousand years older. You compare them and you realize, oh my gosh, these things are almost identical. I mean, they're just tiny little differences. And what does that say? It validated the idea that, hey, guess what? We've been accurately copying this all this time. And here's a copy of the Old Testament that's before Muhammad ever even dreamed of being born. In other words, it validated the accuracy of the Hebrew scriptures. And so today, the Dead Sea Scrolls, most of them, are housed in a shrine in Jerusalem. And uh, it's this really cool-looking building. Sorry I didn't bring up a picture of that. But it's a great uh, museum, basically. It's a shrine where they've got the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's the real significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Big deal to the Jews. Validates the Old Testament that, you know what? This really is accurate. And now, that's important to us, too, as Christians, but it's probably more important to the Jews. Well, who wrote these things? Who was copying this? Well, right next to these caves, in a site that's called Qumran, there are extensive ruins. It's not a huge place, but i just showing you just a little piece, and I showed you this for a reason. This is a cistern. It's a, it's a unique kind of cistern. It's a step cistern. You can step down into it. This Qumran community is interesting. They had a lot of cisterns, but that's a duh statement because as the rain would come down on those mountains and it would go down, it's going to go into the Dead Sea. Well, they'd capture it in these huge cisterns because it had to last all year for them. So there are a lot of cisterns, but there are also a lot of ritual baths called mikvahs. In other words, they're, uh, they vary in size, but they're kind of small things, and you take some steps down into it. Think about going into uh, kind of like a hot tub maybe. You know, some of them were bigger than that. But fundamentally, it's a place where you'd go in to be ritually cleansed. And there were a lot of them here. So that tells you a couple things. It says, you know what? These people appear to be Jewish. They appear to be fairly devout. I mean, they're clearly interested in this whole ritual cleansing idea. Who could they be? Well, they're living out in the middle of nowhere, so they're obviously not very social. And then some of the documents that are found are very... uh, separatist they're Jewish but they have a huge emphasis on we are waiting for God to come and we're going to help him smite all the sinners out there that's a paraphrase but that's basically you know what a lot of these documents said so you see a very conservative group that's very eschatologically minded in other words we are going to be true to God we're not going to be like the Herodians we're not going to go embrace the culture we're going to be true to God and we are going to wait for him to come, and he is going to vindicate us. In fact, Josephus talks about the Essenes, that was their name, uh, quite a bit. He says, I'll just give you a short description. He said there are three philosophical sects among the Jews. First are the Pharisees, which he says are the very devout. The second are the Sadducees, he has less flattering things to say about them. But the third third sect, which is a severer disciplin,e are called the Essenes. They're Jews, and they have a great affection for one another. They live very communally. They reject pleasure as evil, but they esteem conquest over their base natures as a virtue. In other words, they wanted to cleanse themselves. They wanted to purify themselves to be holy, to be dedicated to God. They don't uh, get married, but they choose other people's children who wish to come live with them and raise them as Essenes there's not to be found anyone among them who has anything more than another for it's a law among them that whoever joins their sect must give up all their possessions and everybody shares in common. In fact, he goes on to say when they travel, they don't take anything with them because there will be Essenes living. They didn't just live here but there'll be Essenes in a town. There might be two or three or however many and they would just walk in and say, okay, I need some clothes and I need some food and they go, hey, you're a fellow Essene and what we have is yours. So they live very communally They were very devoted. They purified themselves several times a day. In other words, they were ultra, ultra conservative Orthodox Jews of the time. He says, they view with contempt the miseries of life. They are above pain by the setting of their mind. As for death, they're not afraid of it because they believe in a resurrection to glory. That's an interesting thing. Josephus goes on and says, listen, I'll tell you what. These guys were devout. He says, during that Jewish rebellion, when the Romans came in in 70 A.D., they tortured and killed a lot of people. He says this, he says, whatever their trials, no matter how much they were tortured, burned, torn to pieces, went through all kinds of instruments of torture, they could never be forced to blaspheme God or to eat what was forbidden to eat nor once were they begging their uh, tormentors for mercy, nor did they shed a tear. They laughed to scorn those who tortured them, knowing that their souls were going to be reborn. So he has a very high view of the devout nature of the Essenes. And a lot of people, not, I mean, there's differences of opinion on this, but probably the predominant idea is this sect of the Essenes are the people who lived at Qumran, and that explains why they were copying these texts. The thinking is, is that when they knew that the Romans were coming, they took all the texts, they put them in these pottery jars, and hid them in those caves, intending to go back and get them, but likely the Romans killed them all. And so there they sat from about 70 A.D. until 1947, until we find it and shed that light on it. So this Qumran area is very interesting, and you, that's one of the things you'll see kind of a pattern. There has to be a reason to live in a place like this. There has to be a reason to turn your back on the culture and the big city and all the temptations of the culture of the time. For the Essenes, it was a devotion to God and a desire to separate themselves from the culture. Question?
1: Okay, Um, the questions I have go back a little ways, so this one actually relates more to last week. How long was the period of enslavement in Egypt, and did the Israelites remember freedom?
0: Well, 400 years, you can forget a lot of stuff. I'll just tell you, having teenage boys, less than one generation (laughs) is all it takes (laughs) to forget everything you've taught them, right? Doesn't it seem that way? But, yes, uh, in all seriousness, they remembered the stories, but you could tell that as a people, remember our statement, you know, God took the Israelites out of Egypt. That was just the first part. Had to get Egypt out of the Israelites. They had to get that slave mentality. Had to get that kind of devotion to Egypt's gods and had to reteach them what it meant to be free because they were generationally slaves. So long enough that they had not forgotten who God was, but they had completely forgotten who they were. Remember, we talked about that. Sometimes what God takes us through, it's to teach us who God is, but I would argue that a lot of times it's for God to teach us who we really are. So, yeah, long enough for them to have forgotten that.
1: How How did the Zealots end up in Masada? Did Herod's people just abandon it, or...?
0: Yeah, good question. So Herod dies about the time of Jesus. Zealots are show up there in, in about 70 AD, so a long time there. But after Herod's death, he still got the mining operation. Okay, I've got to tell you something about the zealots. Think more terrorist than uh, poster freedom fighters. These were not nice guys. They would kill Jews sometimes too, and when they went in there, they just took the place over from the Jews that were there. And their rationale was this, by the way, I tell you this, but this is exactly the rationale you read in the 20th century Islamic thinkers, radical Islamic thinkers, and that is this, that if you were so cowardly as to pay taxes to the Romans, or if you were so cowardly to live under this Roman system and you won't join us and rebel, you're just as bad as the Romans. So they actually took it by force. They literally burned the towns around there, took the food and the water, killed many many of the jewish people around there and then went up to masada and they took it over and then hold up there as a military unit so the zealots of that time remember one of jesus disciples was a zealot this ought to tell you something about why did he pick that guy they were pretty radical what they would do is they would do these little raids and kill roman soldiers and their attitude was Hey, we kill enough of them, and Rome starts a fight. Maybe all the rest of the Jews will rise up, and we'll throw these guys off. Well, not many of the rest of the Jews wanted to pick a fight with the Romans. Wisely so, because they got completely destroyed. But the Zealots wanted to start something. So they were not nice people. They were pretty fanatical, and uh, that was not their finest moment when they uh, took over Masada and killed a lot of their fellow Jews in doing so. But that's how they took that area.
1: I have a few questions about the Essenes. Um, first of all, one, one thing you could probably straighten out. Can you spell that, please?
0: E-S-S-E-N-E, Essene.
1: And do we know where that word comes from or what it means? Uh, I do not. OK. Not related to Hasidic Jews, necessarily?
0: Uh, no, it's not related to Hasidic, but as long as we're talking about that, that's another interesting story. A okay, short version. Back in time. 167 B.C. This is back before all this happens. I'll tell you where the Hasidic Jews come from and I'll tell you where the Pharisees come from. If you remember, there was big oppression in that period of time. That was the Maccabees and uh, they violated the temple and Judas Maccabee says, hey, I'm not tolerating that stuff, you know, and uh, we're going to read our Bible even though it's punishable by death. Another huge persecution of the Jews. And they end up overthrowing the Seleucid dynasty. They were Greeks at that time. But out of that, there were people amongst the Jews. Again, I want you to see how much like us they were. I mean, I know it looks technologically different, but they're no different than we are. Yet some of the Jews have said, well, let's see, I can kind of act like a Greek and join their system and kind of participate in their culture, and they won't kill me. I'll just let them burn my Bible. Or, no, you're not taking my Bible. You can torture me. You can kill me. There was kind of that tension Well, the people who said, no, you you are not taking my Bible, you can torture or kill me, were called Hasids. They were the people who were devout. The Pharisees evolved from them, and that's where the Pharisees came from. The Essenes, during the time of the Pharisees, were an even stricter sect than that. So there's kind of a connection, but not a direct connection that I know of.
1: How do we know that the Essenes at Qumran are the same ones Josephus described?
0: Good question, and therein lies some scholarly debate. Uh, We could talk about that a lot, but I think it would bore you to death. But it's a very interesting argument. We do not know for certain, most scholars think the preponderance of evidence, it's circumstantial, would indicate a communal uh, place of living, a lot of mikvahs, so they're obviously into ritual purity, you have what's called a scriptorium where it looks like a place where people copied scroll. I mean, you've got all this evidence that seems to link up with what you know about the Essenes. There are other theories about who else it might have been. This just happens to be the prevailing idea. So I'm not telling you that that's a certainty, but that the preponderance of evidence seems to make that likely. If you have another theory that you like, I'm fine with that too. But uh, it's a great time to talk about the Essenes, and most people think... It kind of makes sense that's what we have going on here, especially from the scrolls. The scrolls clearly match up with the ideology of the Essenes.
1: Do the Essenes exist today?
0: Essenes do not exist today. Remember one of their creeds, we don't get married? (laughs) Tough, (laughs) very tough. So no, Essenes do not exist today.
1: Was John the Baptist an Essene?
0: That is a great question. Was John the Baptist in a scene? I'm trying to think how to give you a short answer to this. Doesn't that just sound like a great little conspiracy theory? You should write books about that. People will buy it. Oh, wait, people have done that. Anyway, no, in the sense that there is no conclusive evidence at all that John the Baptist was in a scene. It's just a kind of a, ooh, wouldn't that be interesting? What are the similarities? He lives off in the middle of nowhere, He eats locusts and honey, for heaven's sakes. He does not dress like a city dweller. And he's got this message, not as extreme as the Essenes, but it's a message of separate from the culture. Remember, repent for the kingdom of God is here. Leave that kingdom of the world and come to the kingdom of God. There's some similarities with that idea, but there are a huge number of dissimilarities. Now, I'm going to flip around and tell you some things that I think are interesting. If you notice the early church... By the way, there are people who think that John the Baptist was in an a scene, and so was Jesus, that he also was in a scene. There's just really not good evidence. I, just, I don't think that there's compelling evidence there at all. They don't exhibit any of the radical nature of what you see in the scrolls of the scenes. But here's something to think about. Early church, what kind of living did you see in that community? They didn't separate themselves, did they? They didn't go out in the middle of the desert. They lived in Jerusalem. They lived where they were, but... They had a lot in common, didn't they? It doesn't say that they all took everything they had and it was a communistic thing, but there were no needy people among them that when they saw a need, they would give some of what they had for that. I mean, it's a little like the Essenes, isn't it? You see the idea of welcoming. Christians would welcome other Christians. Hey, come in, are you hungry? Fine, you can eat with us. In other words, you see some similarities of that fellowship from the Essenes and that Qumran community. So there are some interesting parallels but I don't find them compelling. If you do, that, that's interesting, but I just don't see the evidence there to make that. Now, were John the Baptist and Jesus aware of who the Essenes were? Undoubtedly. They knew who the Pharisees were and what they believed. They knew who the Sadducees were. They had to have known who the Essenes were and what they believed as well. Okay, good questions. Well, the one lesson before we leave that site, because I have one other little place I want to show you, and we'll finally get out of the desert, is this. The lesson from Masada to me is this, is that just like there was a world system competing with God's system then, money, affluence, I can give you everything you desire physically here versus be true to God, that's still true today. God calls us to be separated. But the story of Qumran is this. Although God calls us to be separate from the world, he does not call us to be completely, physically alienated from the world. There's a great little passage in James, chapter 1, pure and undefiled religion is this, to take care of widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unpolluted or unspotted from the world. In other words, we will be in the world. We don't have to leave Oklahoma City, folks, and go to Masada. God doesn't call us to say the world's evil This is what the Essenes thought, separate yourself physically, don't go near them. But what we're taught is, but separate our hearts from this world. We are not going to participate in this world system. We live in the kingdom of God. But we're not called to become monks and nuns. And I don't mean that to be critical. What I mean it is, is... is basically giving you the idea that we're not called to come into Crossings Community Church behind our pretty walls and bar those doors and no worldly people are allowed to come in. We're not called to separate ourselves from the world like that, like they did at Qumran. Well, the third site, before we leave the desert and go into some really prettier parts of Israel next time, is right in the middle. And right in the middle of this area in the Dead Sea is an interesting little place called En Gedi. And Gedi is a place that you have heard of in the Old Testament because back in 1 Samuel, around chapter 23, 24 in that area, you hear the story of David fleeing from Saul. Remember when Saul's trying to kill David? David's going to be king. Saul doesn't like it. Saul goes kind of crazy, uh, off his meds. I don't know. But Saul is trying to kill David, and he's chasing him all around. One of the places that David takes refuge is in Gedi, the desert around in Gedi and the actual springs of En Gedi. You come walking out of... you Remember what the Dead Sea looked like? Remember what Qumran looked like? You come literally, literally walking out of the desert, and whoops, ground drops away, and down there you see... Well, you don't see us in those days, but you see everything else that's in this picture. This is an unbelievably beautiful little area. I mean, it's down below... It's fed by a spring, and there aren't many of these in the desert, but where there are, you see this beautiful waterfall and this pool. There are trees, not mega trees like we think of trees, but trees in there. And you go walking alongside the stream that runs through En Gedi. I mean, literally, you can be looking in the desert, and you can't see it, and you look, oh, there it is. I mean, it opens up into this chasm and this spring, and you go walking in there, it's 20 degrees cooler. It's just nice and cool in the shade and there's water. It's, it's like heaven. And so you'll see when David in his psalms, you know, talks about that soothing. You know, I put one on your handout, the idea of like a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. David came walking in out of that desert and his men literally fell at the side of these pools. And it's just beautiful in there. There are animals. This is the ibex. This is kind of the national animal of Israel. It's kind of a symbol. And there are animals in there. There you can grow things. It's not a big area, but it's think oasis. It's kind of like an oasis. But David and his men came here. And they would hole up here and then they would go around the desert. They'd come back to refresh themselves. But you see this beautiful place of refreshing. And you know you cannot help but make this observation, because everything I've talked to you about today is geography but also culture. There's an interesting parallel here. At Masada, we saw not just harsh elements, but you saw a symbol of the battle of cultures, the affluence of secular culture, or will we be true to God? At Qumran, you saw a desolate place where people were very devoted and separated themselves, but what you really saw was a rejection of Herod's world system, of the Roman and Greek world system and the worship of false gods and the pursuit of happiness through things and a devotion to God. You see this culture battle. You see the same thing in Engedi. The culture, our culture is a desert and here's what I mean by that. If you ask the question what fulfills me? What satisfies the deepest needs of my soul? What will make me happy? Our culture has a lot of answers. And they're all just as dead as the Dead Sea. You can drink from the Dead Sea and it's gonna feel like water going down, but it will kill you. It's not nourishing to you, is it? It's polluted water, it's poisonous waters. The answers of our culture to our life needs and life problems are poisonous to us. Then you come walking in out of the desert and you walk into this, you walk into Living water. Water, And that's what it was called because it was moving water. It came from a spring. It comes up. It moves down. That's literally what the Jews called living water. It's not a cistern. It's not just stale water. Hey, this is fresh water, living water. The living water is God's word. We have the desert of our culture whose answers will parch us. And then you have the living water. And that, that symbol is so vivid in the geography and in the history of Israel, but it lives for us today as well. And here's my challenge for us. and Getty is a symbol of coming from all that the, the world gives you, the desert of its answers. I know it doesn't look like a desert. Those TV commercials look very appealing, but they're just as, as empty and dry as the desert. And then walking into the refreshing answers that God brings. And here's my challenge. Is our church an engetty? Is Crossings Community Church an Engetty in this community? You know people, you work with people out there who are desperately struggling and striving and scratching and worrying and trying to find happiness in all that the world tells them will be happy. When they come in here, is it like walking into that place? Is this a place where they'll find truth? This is a place where you'll find real answers, real nourishment for your soul. That's what we're trying to do. Crossings Community Church and God's kingdom in all the congregations around the world are in in the midst of the parched desert of our culture. And then here's my second challenge. Are you and I an in Wherever you go, my challenge to you is simply this. No matter where you work, It's in your family, it's around your friends. Are we part of the desert? Are we critical? Are we unforgiving? Are we gossips? Are we ones who we parch their souls or do we nourish their souls? Are we the encouragers? Are we the forgivers? Are we the ones who are going to build people up? Are we the ones that are going to have food when they need it and water when they need it and encouragement when they need it and comfort when they're grieving? Are we living water to the people around us? And I hope that this image, and when you go there, and I hope that we all go there together someday, and you see this, it's just so vivid that there's the desert and here's life. That's what you and I are. We are the En in a culture. That's just dry and barren. All right? That's your challenge. This week, I want you to think about this. Be an En Gedi wherever you go. Be that cool, refreshing place that offers truth. Next time, we will leave the desert. We are going to go to a place a little farther north in Israel where almost all the huge battles have been fought and the great one at the end of time will be fought. And we're going to go have a look at that next time. Thank you, guys.